doing that, I was face to face with it. It was holding me by my throat. And it felt like it was sucking something out of me. I probably should have been more scared than I was when I witnessed the exorcism. I turned and looked on my right side. When I did, there's, there's a beam on the side of the tree, a large beam. It's looking at me and I'm looking at it. After I hit the lock button and looked back up, I saw red eyes staring back at me. That they're going to show multiple gods all over the earth, be able to speak in people's languages, and at that point, it kind of converge into this one entity, which will be revealed as extraterrestrial. You'll realize that aliens are the gods of old, and at that point, it'll wipe religion out of the context of humanity. No, it couldn't have been a person. I know that. I know that people can't run through the woods like that. So this thing comes into view, and I see it. It's 50 yards away from me. It's walking. It's walking on two legs. It's huge. This is a big, hairy-looking being. Welcome back to the show, my friends. I am your host, Eric Salagi. If you've had an uncomfortable experience and you'd like to have it featured on the show, please get a hold of me at contact.uncomfortable at gmail.com. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, both at Uncomfortable Podcast 65. Most importantly, please share the show with others and make sure you leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you can. Those are the main ways that you can help getting the show out in front of other people. And with that, more people listening means more great guests coming forward with their experiences like tonight's guest. If you haven't already, make sure to pick up the link in our show notes for the Uncomfortable Discord. It's been a lot of fun. Lastly, you've heard me mention this earlier. Bigfoot and Bruce will again be held at the Sister Lakes Brewing Company. Most likely, September 9th is the date for that event. I am currently in conversation with two well-known speakers, and we will be getting the details ironed out with that very soon. Look for an announcement for ticket sales within the next 30 days, if not sooner. With the success of last year's event, I would suspect that we're going to grow from what we had last year but there is a cap to the number of people that can attend. Um, there's only so many people that can fit in that venue and, and still be serviced by the, the people at that fine brewery. So when I do make the announcement, I suggest you get your tickets quickly because it's going to sell out. One more thing. You've heard me mention this before. Uncomfortable Patreon is coming. Many of you have asked how to help the show, how to help support it. Patreon looks like it's the best way that I can provide you with a way to do that. It will also be the only place that you can find uncomfortable afterthoughts and a new edition, a little uncomfortable. So I'm not going to tell you any more about that. You're going to have to 
go check out Patreon and see what I'm talking about there. Tonight's guest, ladies and gentlemen, finally, let's get to the meat of it. Hails from Southern Indiana, is quite accomplished. He is a master distiller of spirits, a distillery consultant. He's authored two books on the subject. He is a co-host of Distillers Talk podcast, has a YouTube channel called the One Piece at a Time Distilling Institute, and by now, I'm guessing you're all saying to yourself, Eric, what the hell does this have to do with Uncomfortable? Well, he's also the host of a new podcast called If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. And from what I know so far, it sounds like he promises to tie all of it together for us. So if you're ready, let's get into it. Bishop, welcome to Uncomfortable. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I've been listening for quite a while now, uh, so I have a I've got an hour commute to and from work every day, and I burn up the podcast as you can imagine. <laughs> and uh, so, the, you know, for sure, the supernatural, the fourteen, you know, high strangeness, paranormal in general has always interested me. And so, you know, short of the obvious distilling related media that I consume. Uh, that's the other thing that I'm listening to on the way to and from work. So, well, I appreciate you as a listener and, uh, quite frankly, from reading your bio, I appreciate you as a, uh, a hard working song bitch because you got a lot of irons in the fire, my friend. Yeah, man, it gets, it gets hard to keep up with, but it's all stuff that I love. And, and it, it's all, for me, it's all intertwined in one way, shape or form. I'm, I'm probably, for a Southern Hoosier, uh, I'm probably minded a little bit different than most people who live in in Southern Indiana. You know, I think the landscape's changed a little bit in the past 15, 20 years, but I, I certainly think that I have a unique view of uh, both history and, you know, the paranormal, et cetera, and the culture of this region. I think a lot of it was forgotten and erased at one point in time, you know, specifically with prohibition in this part of the state. Well, let's get into it. Let's, uh, I mean, first of all, how did you, uh, how did you fall into becoming a master distiller? Uh, that doesn't sound like something you go and take a, a four year, uh, course at a local community college for. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I mean, just tell us, give us a landscape of that. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, and I will say this, I, I very, I very rarely call my, I actually, I never call myself master distiller because I always make fun of like that title because it's such a goofy, like convoluted title. So I, I call myself the alchemist because I figure it like this. If you're going to be pretentious, be all the way pretentious, right? And make <laughs> fun it. of yourself to some degree. I love it. So uh, I grew up in a family, uh, all of which on both sides were from Kentucky. Part of them were from uh, kind of the Oneida, Manchester area. The other part were from Greensburg, Hodgenville, et cetera. My grandparents moved here in the 1940s and bought a little 40-acre farm in Pekin, Indiana, along the old uh, Louisville, Nashville, or New Albany and Salem Railroad, sorry. Um, and they were all, on both sides, they all distilled to some degree. Now, how much they would admit to it, how much they really did it, 
would be up for debate amongst both sides. Certainly on my mom's side from Oneida, Manchester was much more common, but long and short of it, my, my father's grandparents bought this farm. They were factory workers. Well, he was a factory worker, made cabinets and desks and things of that nature, but they also raised tobacco and we made a little bit of moonshine. It wasn't a ton, but we made enough moonshine to basically be able to pay property taxes, which is kind of funny because you're making an untaxed product to make, property tax payments, uh, and to also pay Christmas gifts. Right. So I would say that was, I was kind of raised for better or worse than a family of vice. You know, they didn't, didn't necessarily encourage drinking or smoking, but certainly, you know, that's where a lot of our money came from. You know, it wasn't much money, but it was enough to get by on. So I remember being around distillation equipment when I was three years old. Um, to me, it was just, there was nothing romantic or sexy about it. Like people make it out to be today. It was another piece of farm equipment and being a farm kid, you know, by the time I became a teenager, it was literally like, Oh, great. Look, another reason why we can't go do anything fun on the weekend. Um, when I was about 15 and I want to make sure that I preface this by saying I'm not encouraging in any way, shape or form, the abuse of alcohol, the underage drinking thing whatsoever. But my grandfather and my dad, I got interested in still in for obvious reasons at that time. Uh, and so my parents either had the best friends in the world or the worst parents in the world, depending on how you want to look at it. And what I mean by that is they knew I would find things being in rural Indiana, uh, better for me to do those things in the backyard where they can keep an eye on me. So, they helped me build a little 10 gallon still out of an old stainless steel antique coffee dispenser from Fort Knox, Kentucky. And they gave me two rules and the two rules were first and foremost, don't, blow, don't blow your ass up in the backyard. <laughs> and the second rule was bring us something when it's worth drinking, but they refused to tell me how to do anything. I knew the things I'd seen them do. They were doing mostly what was called sugar shine, which if you're familiar with like, you know, the TV shows and stuff like that that are out there, that's mostly what you see on there. It's one pound of grain per gallon, one pound of sugar. You're not converting uh, your starches and your grains into sugar or anything. So the simplest way to distill in the world. And I started there doing a lot of that stuff. We did a lot of brandies uh, from fruits when I was growing up, specifically peaches and apples, because everybody around here had a tree in their yard uh, and they didn't use them for anything. So they didn't want to have to mow around them, which is really uh, a nice way of me saying I got stung by every damn insect that ever lived in the state of Indiana growing up. Uh, but that started me off. And by the time I was in my twenties, my early twenties, uh, I had converted the old tobacco farm into a organic produce farm. And really what I was interested in was breeding breeding and or preserving old varieties, old heirloom crops, or breeding new ones that would be open pollinated crops to withstand, you know, sort of low input agriculture. And there's no money in that, uh, to just to be honest, even at the farmer's market, you know, you pull up the farmer's market here in Southern Indiana, as we call it, who's your occupied Northern Kentucky. If you abbreviate that, it's, it, it's honky is really <laughs> what it is, but uh, it doesn't matter how early you get there with tomatoes. You're going to have a neighbor pull up with a trunk full of tomatoes. He's going to pull up in your stand and he's just going to give them away to people. So you're not going to make any money. Uh, it didn't take my brain long to realize, you know, distilling and agriculture are they're, they're inherently related. Distilling is agricultural. So you've got all these strange things that nobody's ever seen uh, as far as different colors and tastes and produce, et cetera, different rare produce. What happens when you put it through the still? And that sort of set me off in that direction. Uh, eventually, probably got a little bit too big for my britches. I knock on wood, never got caught. But my now wife, when I was in my late 20s, she's like, listen, you got to go get a job doing this or I'm out. I put in um, 
the worst resumes anyone has ever seen in their entire lifetime. I'm pretty sure of that at every craft distillery that was opening in Louisville, Kentucky at the time, because we still weren't legally allowed to have a craft distillery in the state of Indiana at that time. I got hired on a, a brandy distillery in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, and I worked there for two years, uh, laid out a lot of their programs, including their absinthe program, their apple brandy program. But I knew Louisville was not where I wanted to be. You know, I wanted to, I, I wanted to be on what I call, well, what Kentuckians call the wrong side of the river, the North Bank, you know, where, where supposedly nothing ever happened. You know, it, as though all distillers got to the Ohio River, looked across at Indiana and said, I don't know what's over there, but I'm not going but I knew the history and I wanted to play off that and luckily got hired on by um, spirits of what would become spirits of French lick with the French lick winery, which is family owned by the Doty family and, and has been since 95. They opened the distillery in 2016 and laid out all the protocols, all the products, um, tried to work my magic into the name as much as I can. You know, it's spirits of French lick and it's not just the spirits in the bottle. It's the spirits of the place and the stories that are behind those spirits and uh, been at it, been at it since then. Um, just plugging along and doing what we do. I got to interrupt you for a second because you brought mm -hmm. up a, a name, uh, just a bit ago, absinthe. And, yeah. uh, I, this last summer was, uh, <clears throat> taken to a place where my son took me and, and that's the first time that I was able to, to try absinthe and they went through the whole, the whole process, uh, uh at the table with it and, that was that was a unique experience i i really enjoyed that it it is definitely for me so absinthe and you know i make a lot i make a lot of bourbon i'll be honest with you but bourbon is not my it's not my go-to absinthe and apple brandy are by far my two favorite spirits um everything about absinthe whether it's on the consumer side and and all the sort of um you know various little things that go along with like that Parisian method of, of drinking absinthe from the fountain and the spoon and sugar. If you add sugar, I often don't. Um, and then on the production side, uh, you know, if you make a real, a true bell epoch or earlier style absinthe uh, and you're a distiller, that is kind of what I call the distiller's thesis because it is not an easy distillation. Uh, and it is, I mean, it's complicated. You're, you're dealing with almost what you would call a solid state distillation. You have as many solids in that still as what you do liquid. And it's hard, hard not to mess it up. Um, it's actually, it's kind of built into a little bit of my spirituality as it were. Um, so absinthe is very, very close to my heart for sure. And Indiana has a history of absinthe as well. Does it really? Uh, a lot of people don't. Yeah. We were down in Switzerland County over on uh, the southeastern side of the state of Indiana. The Swiss Huguenots moved into there uh, prior to the 1830s to start the very first really kind of successful commercial winery in the United States. But these were all Swiss Huguenots from the Valde Traverse region, which is where absinthe was born at, of basically uh, kind of a Greenwich tradition. Um, and they were making absinthe on a commercial basis by the 1830s. Interesting. So, interesting. All right. So, let's let's start getting into the meat of it. Uh, at, at any point during the uh, during the show, if you have, if you want to plug your books or or your other podcasts, that that is absolutely fine with me. Let people know where they can get a hold of you. Um, but I want to I want to start getting into the the crux of of what your your original reaching out to me about was. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, 
I got I got interested in doing a podcast on the paranormal several years back, uh, really, uh, and I would be I would mention it on other you know distilling related things, and you know you kind of get the the you get the eye roll because people don't really know the history of distillation and how connected and tied to the world of spirituality and and alchemy that distillation is. Now I'm not talking industrial distillation here. I'm not talking like Jim Beam, etc. I'm talking you know true craft distillation, pot still batch distillation um, and where distillation really came from way back when. Uh, so to kind of bring the audience up to date on that sort of belief system and that sort of idea, we'll have to, we have to talk a little bit about that background of distilling. Um, so distilling as, as we know it, at least in the uh, Western hemisphere, really started with the Dionysian cults. Now there were, there were earlier distillers than that for sure. Um, in both Arabia and China, and you can take China way back with distillation. But when you want to talk about that sort of metaphysical thing, the way that we understand it in the Western hemisphere, it starts with those Dionysian cults. And this idea of Dionysus being a green man type figure, you know, the death and rebirth um, uh, sort of aspect. Yeah. Uh, so the idea with distillation in was very, very primitive. Um, it was not uh, still as you might recognize it nowadays. Uh, and the spirit wasn't often drink. But what they would do is they would celebrate the new wine uh, in the springtime, not even a new wine yet, but the new growth of the vines in the springtime at the various rites by taking some of the old wine, which they viewed as the dead Dionysus's blood and distilling it. They would have kind of a crucible at the top of the still and they would light that distillate on fire because, you know, back then, if you can, you know, create fire on demand, you can convince your followers that you have the power of whatever God that you follow. But they had a number of other what you might even consider parlor tricks that they used to sort of reinforce this idea of Dionysus being the God of death and rebirth and of the vine and holy water baptism. Baptism by fire, as a matter of fact, comes from the same group of people. So one of the things that they would do is they would actually take the distillate, they would lower the proof, they would add a little sulfur to it, and you could pour it over somebody and set it on fire, and it wouldn't burn them. The other thing they would do is they might place their followers into a baptism because Dionysus at one point goes into the underworld to bring his mother back to the living, meaning that he has to leave, you know, for the wintertime, basically, you know, sunlight growth and everything goes away. He emerges from the water. That's part of where the idea of baptism and water comes from. But what they would do often is they would baptize the convert and then they would throw high proof distillate on top of the water and then set that high proof distillate on, on fire so that when the person emerged from the water, the waters around them were on fire. Um, so as you can see, there's already this sort of idea of there being a power behind the art of distillation. Um, even, even if by our standards, it's kind of a magic trick. It's, it's more the idea that they put their belief into that and right. what it could do, um, which I find incredibly interesting. Mm -hmm. And it's very much based around the idea of spirit. You, you asked before we started talking on the podcast, that, that background of that word spirit. So the idea is that it's the quintessence of whatever you're distilling. It's the quintessence of whatever that raw material is. It's the very thing that makes that raw material what it was. Um, and from a very basic perspective, even with just beverage alcohol distillation, it's take apple brandy, for example, the idea would be that you are a preserving the crop, but more importantly, uh, both for the soul and for health and spirit, etc., you're able to capture what that apple was when it was ripe on the tree at the height of its ripeness, put it into a bottle or a container. And in January, when everything is dead and done for the year, you can open that bottle and be back underneath of that tree in sort of a, a spiritual 
sensory experience, as it were. What a unique and, uh, I guess, maybe more romantic uh, view of that. Yeah, very, very different than than the industrial minded idea that we have nowadays, um, for sure. I think so. But you know, you go you go back and you look, and you still you'll still see shades of it here and there in industrial distilling. Um, if you go to a distillery and they name their still, you know, there's a lot of superstitions around distilling, and one of the things is that you always name your still. Really? You know, it's yeah, it's 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 if you don't name it and you're distilling on it, it's kind of like selling a ship that doesn't have a name has to have a name and it has generally has to be reflective of the qualities of that still and what that still does. Um, you know, you'll find distillers have a lot of totems around them. So, you know, this could be anything from, you know, people are in the crystals and things of that nature. There's distillers that hide various different totems or items that mean things to them all around their distillery. You know, I know distillers and, and commercial distillers very rarely talk about this, but I know distillers that carry around mojo bags. You know, they've got a, a handful of trinkets that they consider that's where their their power and, and their their intelligence comes from. It's a it's a much more spiritually driven thing, <clears throat> esoteric driven thing yeah. than what people would realize. Wow, how interesting! Mm-hmm. So you're you're saying even like you know, you know the Jim Beams and the Jack Daniels and and those they practice that as well. So you you're probably not going to see it as much <laughs> there as you will with craft distillers. But at one point in time, those families in particular, Jim the Beam family in particular, certainly would have been uh, familiar with a lot of these superstitions having come from from the Black Forest region of Germany. Uh, they would have been raised around certain ideas. Um, you know, depending on how much German influence was there versus how much Scots Irish influence was there, there are various things that they may have implemented as, uh, ways of controlling the quality of their spirit that were also related to spiritualism. So with, uh, that kind of Irish background, I'll, I'll throw you one for certain Irish distillers that are out there, but, uh, oftentimes, in, you know, in pot still distillation, you're, you're fractionalizing different alcohols and some of the alcohols that you don't want that are really bad for you start at the very beginning. Um, so an old school thing to do to teach a distiller who may not understand the, the chemistry of what's happening there to get rid of that, that early fraction is to use superstition. And the idea being that you had to offer the little people a drink and the drink that you should offer them would be the very first thing that came off of the still. And so you would capture what's called the four shots or the heads, which is undrinkable alcohol with methanol in it that can actually hurt you. You'd capture it in a vessel in your right hand and throw it over your left shoulder and give it out as an offering for the little people. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Absolutely. And so you'll find that distilling is very much tied into all those things. Um, Even, even the way that distilling ends up coming further into uh, Europe. So a lot of people have not put two and two together here, but the two groups that were mainly responsible for bringing um, very intensive spiritual alcohol distillation into Europe, uh, the two groups were the Cathars and the Knights Templar, uh, who bring it into Spain, then France, and then via the monks into Ireland. Uh, and it was very much considered a, a sacred art. This is not something that you, you just teach anybody because they view it as a tool. They view it as almost, um, sounds a little, ho- a, a little hokey to say this, but they, they view it as almost, uh, um, 
I guess you'd say like a, a lubricator or a fluid between the worlds, right? Uh, that this is another one of those tools that you can use to open doors that you maybe don't normally open, uh, you know, maybe look, make you look at things a little bit differently, open yourself up to the spiritual world to some degree. And, you know, thus you have the association, of course, with, you know, having a drink whenever a comrade has fallen, et cetera, to sort of have that communion with them. Uh, once it, in, it enters Ireland, you get a really interesting thing that happens, which is that you have, you know, the, the Gauls uh, and the Gales both working together uh, and they get, well, not really working together. The Gales are basically learning from the monks, um, you know, and the, these are the Celtic people there versus the Gauls. And even the word Gaul itself, it, it means those other people, you know, the Scandinavian people, the Norse people. And the Norse people see what they're doing. They start imitating it. Now they're using their spirituality with beer and ale. And they're saying, well, these guys are just making beer and ale and then distilling it. But they're using that in their spiritual practices. You start to see those two spiritual practices and alcohol-related practices come together and imitate one another. Wow. What a, what a picture you're painting. Um, I had no idea. You know, I mean, the, the richness of the... The, the the cultures the belief systems um, mm-hmm. how that how that all ties into how they did what they did and you know it, it seems like so during prohibition obviously you know you guys couldn't do it right mm-hmm. you weren't supposed to do it you had to do it on the sly you know you had to be undiscovered if you were doing it um, how how is that throughout history? Was it always was it always looked down on? Was it uh, was it something that was always kind of done in the the darker, shadowy recesses of communities? For for very long stretches of history, it was it was completely <clears throat> excuse me completely legal and and basically completely untaxed. But once they figured out they could tax it, or once you know societal problems start to become an issue so you know in england you have the gin craze where literally everybody has a broom closet has got a still and they're making gin uh and selling it for more or less nothing on the street or if they start running low on grain you know then the government comes in they start regulating those sort of things but certainly at different points in time you know it's like pandora's box i mentioned earlier the cathars the rosicrucians uh the knights templar who knew this 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 distilling technology and, and beverage alcohol is just one branch of it too. There's, you know, there's of course, uh, spirogery, uh, alchemy, etc. These are all related arts very much. So, um, you know, once, once people see what those guys are doing or those gals are doing, cause oftentimes it was actually females that were distilling. Um, it's the box is open, right. And then it's everywhere. And then from there you get, various levels of government regulation and people breaking those various different regulations because people are going to drink whether, whether people like it or not. Now, um, the interesting thing about that is, you know, there are times when alcohol has been abused by entire societies. Uh, we just went through one. I don't think we've realized that yet. And probably as a commercial distiller, I might not should say that, but, uh, certainly drinking went way North during the last little pandemic. Um, And here's the thing that people don't realize because they just think of it as a drug. When it comes to that spiritual aspect of it, it's like any other tool that that God gave us to use uh, to help change our mindset on different things. You get so far into it, it starts pushing back and it starts punishing you instead. It's interesting that you bring that up because uh, it it does tend to tie into um, what what I've found with talking to a lot of people 
is that during the pandemic, um, and I hate to use this term because it sounds hokey, but I don't know a, a better term to call it, but there, there have been a lot of people who have uh, reported going through a spiritual awakening. Um, now, whether that was uh, imposed by or, or aided by the, uh, the lockdowns where you know people were uh, not able to congregate and they were spending a lot of times by, them, by themselves or you know maybe with just family, um, it seems like this pandemic is as terrible as it has been and even worse at its, at its peak. Um, it does seem that one of the, the, the good side effects of it have been people waking up and, and being more accepting of the ideas that maybe they would have been way closed off to had that not happened. I, I think you're absolutely correct. And, and uh, so as, as a distiller who went through the pandemic and did the whole hand sanitizer thing, because suddenly distillers are no longer expendable at that point. Right. Um, one thing that I noticed, you know, the world, the world, the spiritual world kept moving and it got more intense in a lot of ways. This is one of the reasons why I started. If you have ghosts, you have everything because, uh, and I think you, you probably notice this. I think a lot of you folks that are doing the podcast thing on the 14 side, things ramped up during that period because people were not distracted. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, And things, things ramped up in a way where to me, they were becoming uh, a, it was, there's something, there was something in the air that you could feel B oftentimes there were, you know, physical signs of things. There were things showing themselves that normally didn't show themselves. And there were people reporting those things who, you know, various doctors and lawyers who don't even, you know, they're not even concerned about being anonymous about saying it now because, well, a lot of people have had those experiences. And, and part of it probably was, you know, the use of various recreational substances. Part of it was just not being distracted by the world going past you. Part of it was nature bouncing back. Um, you know, a little bit of a, maybe a centering point on a lot of these things, but you know, that was part of with my spirituality with distilling, even on the commercial side, you know, I mentioned that thing about my distillery spirits of French Lake, not just the spirits and the bottle, but the spirits of the place. That's one of the things that we set out to do. And, and we just happened to be right place at the right time when the pandemic hit that what we did is we went through and we found, or I found the names of, you know, people, in history that didn't get their due in you know, the six County black forest region. And then we'd put their names on the bottle. We'd put a picture of them on the bottle and we'd tell their story. And oh, I even joked that, you know, what you're doing there is, you know, I'm naturally a historian. I can write 10 pages on any of these characters and you know what? Five people might read it and they're all going to be local and they're all either going to know more than I do, or they're not going to care. Yeah. But if you pair that spirit of that person with the spirit and the bottle and you can create a feeling out of it, uh, suddenly it's, it's almost like necromancy, right? You're almost bringing these people back that a hundred plus years ago, they may not have even been mentioned in the history book because they were in the wrong political party or they made somebody mad or they were too scandalous, etc. And then now you take them from being a localized person of interest here in my region to there are people in new Orleans who know who these characters are, right. And they're telling their stories and keeping them alive. Um, and I very much so do believe that this is a conduit. Spirits are a conduit for spirits 
not just human ones, but other ones too, sometimes negative stuff, obviously. And that's where that punishment thing comes back into play. But I, I've always felt like, and this just give you a great primary example of, of with what I do. Every time I have found a spirit that I found interesting that I wanted to name something after, um, even if I couldn't name the spirit after that person, because some other brand might have a name similar to it. I feel like that spirit that I named after went to its buddies and said, Hey, there's a guy that'll tell your story and get people interested because it's 14 things come out of the woodwork, right? You accidentally find information on these people. You might even find a character that you didn't even intend to name something after, but the minute you start going down that rabbit hole, it's like they come forward and they sort of, it drops in your lap. What a personal way of, of giving that, that one who's passed by telling their story, I assume on the side of the bottle, Mm-hmm. Yep. On the side of the bottle and then going in depth on podcasts and things of that nature. Um, and then playing off some of the superstitions as well. And some of the things that I believe in, you know, um, spirits have often been used as conduits and ceremony. You know, you obviously pour a, pour a drink for the ancestors, et cetera, things of that nature in various different, uh, uh, cultures. Um, so we even take, you know, bottles one through three of each product. Nobody ever, nobody ever gets a chance to buy those. Bottle number one will go to the grave of the person that we named it after. Uh, bottle number two usually go to, to either a relative or to the house the person lived in. Wow. Uh, bottle number three often goes to somebody. I do a lot of historic reenactment. It often goes to a person who's played that character. Um, so it's very much a reverence sort of thing. And I also, having had the paranormal experiences I've happened, I've had in my, my lifetime, uh, and that my family's had, because it seems to be pretty common. Um, I don't know that, you know, I'm sure people follow this and they, they understand what I'm about to say, but you know, RH negative blood type, uh, all the way around in my family. Um, I find it (laughs) to me, it's important. Like I want to, I don't want them standing at the foot of this bed that I'm setting by in the middle of the evening going, where's my bottle? You know what I mean? Take care of them. So I got to ask you, you've mentioned a couple of terms, alchemy being one of them, necromancy Mm -hmm. being the other. Um, it, It makes me want to ask you, do you, is there some sort of participation by you in in the process of your distillation are you are you practicing anything that many would be like what <laughs> um <clears throat> So it, it, it kind of, it kind of depends on, 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 on that. So myself, and, and let me, let me state this up front. I, I tend to identify mostly with Sethian Gnosticism. Um, so I, I do very much believe in, in, for example, Jesus Christ, et cetera, um, maybe in a slightly different way than most, you know, mainstream Christians would believe in, in Jesus Christ. But, um, so everything I've ever done, I've always been very, very open about, uh, especially on the commercial side of things. And when it comes to the commercial side of things, you know, it, it's, it's a little more, uh, tangentially related. So, you know, if you come to a tour at the distillery or whatever, I will tell you, you know, I name all the stills, they're all named after 
they're all pot still. So they're all batch systems. Uh, they're always named after women for me uh, of antiquity, either goddesses of antiquity and or biblical characters of antiquity, because, you know, a pot still has curves. A woman has curves. Mm-hmm. So a pot still is giving birth to a spirit, etc. cetera. Um, so that plays into it. Now on the, on the personal side of things, um, certainly, you know, I, I do sort of work distillation into every aspect of my spirituality in a lot of different ways uh, on, on a home level, whether that's making spariagic medicines um, and somebody's going to reach out and say, he didn't say that. Right. And I know that I'm, I, I have that weird cornbread Hoosier accent here in <laughs> Southern Indiana. So uh, I get it. Um, but yeah, certainly like, you know, there are times that, you know, I'll pray over spirits when I'm distilling them. And the idea of that is literally like, Hey, uh, you know, this can be a dangerous thing. I don't, please don't let anybody hurt themselves with this. Please don't let anybody hurt anyone else with this. Please let them, when they imbibe it, let it bring joy to them, yeah. excitement, etc. You know, a very dear friend of mine who passed away last year uh, by the name of Moonshine Mike Stallings. He was actually originally from Shoals, Indiana and lived in Kentucky. He, um, he and I had some very similar ideas about distillation and, and putting thought and intent into it because you are, a, you're putting something out there that affects people's minds, bodies, spirits, etc. So, you know, we, we might even uh, pray over some quartz crystals and let the liquid, you know, flow over the quartz crystals. And the idea is not so much that those, those crystals aren't magic. You're just showing your intent in something. And when you show your intent in something, it causes you to pay more attention to what you're doing. Um, you know, I've got some very small stills that I do use for, uh, you know, various plant related things such as, uh, trying to make, uh, various plant stones, uh, which is distilling different fractions, saving back some of the distillate, saving back some of the things from inside the still. Um, you can literally create what is called a stone from a plant. It sounds really weird. Uh, it is really weird thing. Very few distillers have ever done this. Uh, but you made a concentrate of a plant is what you've done. And then if you use a little bit of that, when you make a tincture from that plant, it makes it that much stronger. Again, it's intent and it's idea, right? Most of what people think of, and this is not to say that there were not and are not very strange paranormal things happening in this world. Cause there are, and there's a real darkness in this world right now, in my opinion. Uh, but Agreed. most of the things that you would think of as esoteric, um, are really just about the intent of what you're doing and, and having the knowledge to be able to carry out those actions. Right. And even the idea of alchemy led in the gold, um, you know, there were, there were people that were trying to do that without any doubt, but that is very much so uh, it's a metaphor once you read into it and it can be a metaphor for many different things, just as the philosopher's stone can be a metaphor for an actual physical stone of a certain type um, that I, 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 I would be remi- I wouldn't want to tell people what that that's made out of because they'll find it if they look hard enough on Google nowadays, or it can be the philosopher's stone as in knowing oneself, having a gnosis of yourself and having a knowledge of the world that surrounds you because of that gnosis. Wow. Very interesting. I, mm-hmm. I feel like my buddy, Tommy over in the UK from let's get freaky podcast. He, uh, he says, wow, and uh, awesome a lot. And, you know, I find myself, I'm kind of stuck right there. Um, it, it's it's amazing to me. Uh, I mean, it's not something I've ever really thought about at length. You know, yeah. I, en- I enjoy cracking open a bottle and having drinks with my son or when I'm out. Um, <clears throat> but it's never been, it's never been anything that I thought of that goes to the, to the extent 
you know, like you said about intent, intent is a very important and I believe very powerful action. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And even, and and even if people on the other side of it don't know what that intent was, mm -hmm. it still comes through. Yeah. And exactly. It, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't, even if they have no belief or no interest in that, the, the intent is still there that I've made you a good beverage that you're going to enjoy. And I've given you a story that hopefully you enjoy and that you can share elsewhere. And, and I, you know, you're right. People don't know this about distillation. Even distillers often don't know this about distillation. And um, I will, I'm going to throw you one more little historical thing here that I think that you'll like on the spirituality of distilling. So here in Southern Indiana, in particular, in the Six County Black Forest region, and this ties directly into the Christianity that we have here in Southern Indiana. Um, matter of fact, it ties into a, there's one distiller, and I'll tell you that momentarily, that ties into a very strange form of Christianity. Um, but most of your early distillers here from, say, the very first one that we know of in, in Southern Indiana was a man named John Fleener in 1807, north of Salem, Indiana. Most of them were preacher distillers. And it's because they started off as traveling preachers. They had no church. You know, they went from town to town, place to place, last rites, marriages, um, all the things that you expect out of a preacher or reverend. Uh, they realized very early on that Southern Indiana was going to be a milling slash distilling state. And distilling is really by far economically the more important of those two because we have this false history in Indiana due to prohibition um, that settlers didn't have a way to grind their corn. They did. They just had more corn than they needed and they needed the whiskey more so because they could use it for trade and they could use it for medicine. And it was considered rude or incongruent. If you didn't have a bottle of clear spirits on your table and you invited a neighbor over to help you with any kind of farm chore, they're probably not going to help you because pretty much everybody up until about 1835 in Southern Indiana was drinking a little bit, although they didn't necessarily drink to get drunk. That group, um, that, that group that you're talking about that recognized the potential for Indiana, was that because there was so much farmland and so much corn? That was, that's a very big part of it. Another part of it was it's, it's uh, it being a closely associated with river and many of the settlers here either came from Maryland, Pennsylvania, or Kentucky, all three of which were huge distilling States. Um, in fact, Pennsylvania and that earlier black forest immigration from Germany, that's where that came from. Cause if you came down the Monongahela river and you hit the Ohio river, going south you don't naturally land on the kentucky side you either land in southern ohio or southern indiana um and because we had so many waterways in southern indiana just like kentucky you obviously had water power for mills and subsequently therefore the distilleries plus the routes to get everything down south and bring actual money back so it, it didn't take long for these preacher distillers to go well i need a church and the money's in liquor and if people are going to drink, somebody should be able to shepherd them <laughs> and they should be able to control the flow of alcohol if somebody has a problem. So I sell to somebody on Saturday and they have an issue. Then on Sunday, I know who I need to preach to to fix the issue and who not to sell liquor to next Saturday. And, and literally most of the old school churches here in Washington County, Indiana, and trace them back to uh, two, two distillers. Um, who were preacher distillers, uh, one named Thomas Green, uh, who preached and distilled until the 1850s, at which time it became unpopular because of the temperance movement. They, the, even the kids in church used to uh, change the, the words in the hymnals to make fun of them. So one of the famous ones was uh, uh, Thomas Green, prettiest man I've ever seen, Miller Stiller, Soul Saver, and Center Skinner. So basically calling him a, a hypocrite. Um, and the other one was a man named Benjamin Radcliffe, who was originally from Jessamine County, Kentucky. And I mentioned this to you because there's a, 
it's it's just interesting. There's a lot of ghost stories in the area that he owned, but he bought this big cave spring uh, and he, he donated land for the old unity church and then he became preacher at old unity church. So uh, weird Indiana stuff here. Have you, are you familiar with the idea of a two seed church? No. Have you ever heard of this? No. This was a uniquely Indiana concept when it started, but it did spread and it was all over the South and even up the East coast. And some of them still do exist, but it was this idea that, you're either born a seed of God or you're not born a seed of God. And you can't do anything to change that, which to me seems like the most hopeless thing in the world. Yeah. So you might as well just be who and what you are when you're here on the planet, regardless. And you can still come to church. We might chastise you, but you can't help it because you're just a bad seed. And that's where that term bad seed came from. What was the defining factor of whether or not you were a good seed or a bad seed? I mean, how did they, if, how did they determine that? If you're naturally godly, then, then you don't even have to ask the question, right? That's, that would be exactly the kind of way they would preach it to Ooh, you. Right? I'm, a, I'm a bad, <laughs> I'm a bad seed. <laughs> right. It's a very weird thing. And that, that church went through some weirdness after Radcliffe died. Like they literally had a rebellion where the church split off and like part of the church congregation went in, nailed the window shut and like hung out in there with guns and it was it was there's a weird history here for sure wow so <laughs> that's crazy yeah. mm-hmm. yep so and then there you know that ties back into the religion spirituality thing too with the distillers because you know they obviously they understood that just because you drank a little didn't make you a bad person you know taking away the bad uh, you know no involvement here for me with the two seed church right for sure yeah. so it's too weird for me but um, wow, yeah. that is so strange. I've never heard that. Mm-hmm. So was so, was the non-God seed, uh, were, was that like an automatic um, uh, condemnation? Was did, did, Were you just automatically, I mean, if you were not that God seed, were you the seed of the devil then, or were you just lost? A little bit of both, right? The best that you could hope to do in your life is that maybe you could in some way bolster the church or bolster somebody within the church, but it still didn't necessarily change your stars as it were. So you could be a worker bee and you could try to help out, but nobody was ever going to really recognize you for it. And you were never going to better your station because of it. Yep, and you weren't you weren't going to have a uh, a place in what they call the new heaven and new earth. And and I went through those uh, those church records one time, and you'd see things like such and such was excommunicated, even though they knew he was a, knew he was a bad seed. But such and such was excommunicated because he was seen dancing at the town get together or something, right? So they kick you out for dancing or, or any of those things. But uh, you know, your preacher can be a distiller, and it's funny because there's a story about him. He his mill and distillery was right down the hill, and on Sundays when he would preach church, no matter how cold it was, they said he would leave the windows and doors of that church open because he could hear his boys when they would run the big millstones for the mill, he could hear the millstones running. So he wanted to make sure they were still down there working, making whiskey while he was preaching. So, so they got a pass on going to mass. (laughs) Right. right. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. Um, but yeah, th- these are the kind of things that sort of drive me. And that's somewhat, you know, I get into some of these things on if you have ghosts, you have everything. And again, not all of them are directly distillation related, but I do see distillation directly related to my spirituality. It is a part of my worldview. Um, it's very much a part of my, you know, whatever you want to call it, my magic, my intuition, et cetera. 
Um, I do think that there's positive that can come from it. You know, certainly in social situations, you know, used correctly, um, there's positive things that can happen there, you know, and, and even, even on the negative side of things, once it starts to punish people, most oftentimes when somebody figures out that they have a problem and they have a moment with whatever version uh, of God that they believe in, it's usually when they're at their lowest and they've been drinking. Yeah. They, that's usually when they have that moment. So Rock bottom, mm-hmm. what they call it yep. at the bottom of the barrel. Yeah. At the bottom of the barrel. That's right. Through the, through the, the, through the looking glass at the bottom of the bottle. Yeah. So, um, but that's, that's very much kind of what drives me. And, and, uh, you know, I'm go- I'll be diving deeper into some of those things on, if you have ghosts, um, you know, we've done a few haunted distillery episodes and stuff like that. And primarily it's not, it's not just, you know, a show about ghosts. It's also about anything 14 or high strangeness or, uh, you know, we did, uh, we, me and my buddy, Andy Casper, Zach did a whole episode about, uh, the, the Chinese balloon. Right. And, mm. and it, that was really more fun than anything else. Um, but you know, we've had, uh, various people related to the distillation industry on the show, such as, uh, Jack Begadoo, who, um, uh, hood sommelier on, on Instagram, et cetera. He does a lot of, uh, reviews, et cetera, but he is from, uh, from West Africa. And we did two episodes on his belief systems. We had, uh, Kate Henriot jaw, who is a direct descendant of the Henriot sisters who created absinthe back in the Valde. Well, were involved in the creation of the original absinthe back in the Valde Traverse. And she actually lives up your direction, which is super cool. Really? Um, so yeah, all those things, all those things that fall into place, you know, and then we'll throw in, you know, if I got 10 minutes extra, I'll throw in a Serbian vampire story or I'll throw in, <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever weirdness has me interested at this particular juncture. So, um, so what kind of things uh, have you experienced become mm-hmm. privy to, um, in the 40 inside, uh, while doing these, doing this process? What are, what are some of the things that are, are standouts to you? <clears throat> So, uh, uh, I'll just get, this is a, a small example and then I'll go into something bigger. That's not necessarily distilling related, but, um, uh, with the idea of, of, uh, spirits being a medium for communication, et cetera. Uh, you know, I do a lot of reenactment. I talked about that earlier and that character of Thomas green, that's the character that I play when I do reenactments. And, uh, I can tell you that there's, there's something to stepping into his shoes, um, at the end of the reenactment season, I have to quote unquote, go put him back to bed. Uh, go back to his grave and, and literally give him something and put him back to bed. Uh, gets me in a little bit of trouble sometimes. Um, I would say to the extent that when I'm playing that character, uh, I'm not necessarily the normal person that I am. Really? Um, and it, it's a very, very noticeable thing for sure. Uh, I believe that he's also to some greater or lesser degree, the, the reason that these other spirits that I talk about gets tapped on the shoulder, like, Hey, go talk to this guy. Um, I think he's sort of the one that introduces them in a lot of ways. Can you, um, can you kind of expound on, on the, what happens with your personality? Uh, so I become much more outgoing, first of all, and secondarily. So we do this thing. It's called Hell's Half. It, it's the goofiest thing ever, but it's so much fun. It's it's called Hell's Half Acre Hellbilly Burlesque Show, and it's not it's not a burlesque show at all. It's just it's literally me trying to tell the story of Indiana distillation. Uh, and then I've got a bunch of my friends that come and they do this with me. We have black powder pistols, and really I'm playing the character of Reverend Thomas Green, talking, preaching, etc. They're, you know, set up with various props, tables, et cetera, uh, black powder pistols, and their job is to distract me. 
Um, I very much become much more of a, a, I guess, a caricature to some degree when that's happening. But the other thing that I've noticed that happens from time to time is I may be talking and something will come out historically that I didn't know or I don't remember knowing. And then I don't find out until later that it's truthful. Oh, really? It was just there, almost like it was, it had to be said, like it just comes out. Um, and that's happened a number of times for sure. Um, it's also one of those things, like after I get done with one of these reenactments, I can't, no matter how tired I am, I can't come home and go to sleep because it won't leave me alone. It's, and it's not, you know, anything weird happening around me. It's in my head, but it won't leave me alone unless I find a way to put it down and make it leave me alone. It's very, very hard to turn off. Um, Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off, my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. It's it's almost like it's almost like it drives me to try even harder at all the things that I'm doing and push those boundaries that much harder. Um, it's not so much paranormal stuff with it as it is just something's there and you can tell. You know, I, I kind of like in uh, you know with Venom, the comic book character. Yeah, I, I joke yeah. around. I tell my wife, I call I call it my other. Yeah, right. And, yeah. um, it, it's very much a human thing. I can, I can assure you of that. And it does, does typically listen when I put it to bed, uh, which is nice. What's your, what's so, your process for that? Uh, so we, we grow a, a number of different botanicals. So, so I go in the springtime and I, and I, I take things there, uh, take a drink of whiskey, et cetera, and say, you know, kind of a little prayer and say, thanks basically, uh, you know, for helping me out with the things that you have, um, you know, give that to him, et cetera, and, and thank him for what he done, he's done historically for Southern Indiana and distilling and trying to rebuild this black forest uh, distilling tradition that just disappeared completely after prohibition. Um, in the fall, it's often, you know, we'll take marigolds out uh, that we dry. We take a little bit of uh, Nicotiana rustica. I grow a lot of um, uh, botanicals that, you know, would be considered sacred to different traditions and use them in different ways. And then again, offer a drink and, and just kind of say, all right, I'm going to need you to just leave me the hell alone for a while and do what you do and I'll do what I do. And it's fine. Um, but certainly it, it, I can tell you too, that once it's out of your system, it takes a physical toll a little bit. It takes, uh, takes a couple weeks to sort of come back from it as it were. Um, do you think, do you think, here I go again, wow. Um, do you think the, that you're, you're entwined with his spirit? I mean, is he, is he in some way entering you? Maybe not, maybe not from a physical, spiritual interaction, but, mm-hmm. Um, more metaphysical. I, I don't even know. That's what I would say. Yes. So my, my, my opinion very much so of those things. Um, and this ties back to Seth Gnosticism to, to some degree is even, even if, uh, you know, a soul gets to where it goes, it ascends, right. It makes it out of the, out of, uh, past the archons of this current darkness is, is said in the Bible. Um, 
their spirit still lingers to some degree, right? And, and, and that's it's the aspects of them. It's the quintessence. It's the energy, just like when we talk about the spirits in the bottle, right? It's it's this ideal that he represented that took up a certain amount of space at a certain time. That energy is still there, and it very much you can entangle with those things, right? Um, but I wouldn't say it would be so much like it's not like a possession or anything of that nature. It's that that spirit sort of comes into you. And uh, uh, I think you could even see this with, with other arts, like let's say with music, for example, um, you know, I'm a huge Pink Floyd, Sid Barrett fan. I love early Sid Barrett. And uh, you know, when Sid, when whatever Sid had in him yeah. left him, and I very much believe that there was something in him, you can trace where that went to. You can see it in Bowie. You can see it in the early Adam ants. Uh, you can see it coming up into the eighties. It's, it's linear. Right. And it's an energy. It's a quintessence. It's, it's a piece of something that existed once on this place that is no longer wholly here, but it needs, it needs a host to boost it to some degree. Boy, man, talk about a flash from the past. Said Barrett. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Actually got, uh, if you got, if you have ghosts, you have everything in the title. So I used to use that as a hashtag for the spirits that we do. Uh, but that came from uh, a similar character, Rocky Erickson. That was a Rocky Erickson song. If you have ghosts, you have everything. Do you think that when Alan Bishop is tired of playing that role and, mm -hmm. and he takes his last bow and somebody else comes in to, to play that role, do you think that they'll experience the same thing? Or do you think this is something that is unique that happens to you because of your because of how in-depth you're, how ingrained you are with the processes that go along with what you do. I think if someone is, is minded the right way, um, I think it's certainly a possibility, right? I think that, um, I think that certain people have that switch that they can turn on or off, whether on purpose or not on purpose. Uh, and I think there are other energies out there and, and other places that not just with what I work with, uh, but other spirits as it were, they could certainly do the same thing. Um, I, I, I know of maybe, maybe two or three other distillers who might have similar sort of aspects or thoughts. I don't know if they put as much thought and depth into it um, or analyze it as much as, as I have. But I mean, this is, this is, you know, short of spending time with my family and, and doing, you know, if you have ghosts, it's all distilling related. It's either, you know, I'm distilling, writing about distilling, researching distilling, doing videos about distilling and on and on and on. Right. So, um, but yeah, I certainly think that, you know, when, whenever, you know, whenever I go, wherever I go, I think that there will be pieces of my quintessence that stay here, you know, that have been modified by all those that came before for sure. Um, that could probably be picked up on. Absolutely. So what other, what other weird do you have for me? Yeah, man. So I'll touch on, uh, uh, so my wife is often involved in, if you have ghosts, you have everything. Kimberly Marie Bishop. Uh, she goes by distill the distiller's wife, I believe. Uh, and my daughter, sometimes my seven year old daughter, she, she, we do uh, what we call short stuff episodes, which are just supposed to be fun. Right. And yeah. it's, you know, we'll do like a bonus episode for Halloween or Easter or Christmas. And it's literally like, 10 or 15 minutes of me talking to her and like, what do you think of 
this. And those are fun and they're meant to break up the, the more serious aspects of if you have ghosts, you have everything. Um, so uh, one of the, one of the early, well, not early experiences, but one of the experiences related to distillation in particular was uh, with a man named John A. Bowman. And uh, I have to give you a little history to, to give you the, the story here and I'll give you the kind of shortened version. Um, so we live next to the old New Albany and Salem Railroad and about two miles north of here, uh, I've been aware of this since I was a kid. I hiked the tracks so many times in my life. I've been, been all over Washington County up and down these tracks, right? Cause that's what you do when you're, you're adolescent and peaking Indiana and there's nothing else going on. Uh, there's this old beautiful brick federal style house. Um, and you know, everybody always said, Oh, that's the governor's mansion. That's the governor's mansion, whatever. And on the other side of the tracks, there's a huge, uh, granite obelisk monument. That's the tallest one in Washington County. It's very impressive. It sits on its own right next to the train tracks. As a matter of fact, if you were on the train heading south towards Louisville, Kentucky, you would come around a corner, and the first thing your headlight would hit at night was this obelisk, which has got to be a little creepy, you know, if you're a conductor on the train. Uh, later on, I found out the truth about that house. That house was owned by this gentleman, John A. Bowman, who was raised in the north part of Washington County uh, in a family of cabinet makers. Uh, he actually started building cabinets and helping ship them down to New Orleans when he was in his early teens. Then he got involved in raising cattle and horses. His father died when he was relatively young. You know, and this is a time when you took things down to New Orleans, you were walking back to Nanchez Trace. So it's dangerous. You know, the, you know, the real pirates that existed in America were really along the Nanchez Trace and along the Ohio River and Mississippi River. Um, he built up a pretty sizable fortune with his stock. He moved down here to Pekin, I believe, in 1842 when he built the house. There would have been no houses like this anywhere around. Just a grand, really what would have been considered a mansion at that time. Two large studies in the front, a breezeway, private bedroom in the back. You go up the stairs, there was a, a greeting room, and then the rest of the upstairs was a ballroom because he would literally have these huge parties at his house. Um, he became the primary stockholder in the New Albany and Salem state banks. And then he bought into the New Albany and Salem railroad system because they were going to bypass his farm. Well, he was tired of, you know, running his cattle down to down South to the river, up North to the river in order to ship via flatboat. He wanted that train to come across his property. So he bought in. And the reason for the huge curve and the tracks uh, near um, Harristown crossing in Indiana is because they rerouted the tracks that hit Bowman's farm. Uh, long short of it, he was a member of the Knights of Pythias. He was a member of the Freemasons and several other fraternal societies here, here in Salem, Indiana. Um, he didn't get married until very late in his life. In fact, the, uh, the Water Stevens history book called him the most eligible bachelor in the state of Indiana. He had been a state senator, state representative. Uh, when his mom passed away, he actually took in his, his younger brother and his younger sister. Um, and when he passed away in 1886, and we believe it may have been of, of, uh, basically it was a respiratory illness and it reads, it reads like pneumonia. He, he, one of his fences caught fire. He went out, tried to put it out. And then thereafter he was just sick for months. And, and in fact, in the old house underneath the bedroom that he lived in, we found a number of, uh, different medicine bottles that all were sort of related to tuberculosis, pneumonia and respiratory illnesses of, of that sort. So it's always very interesting in this house. And the very first moonshine I made on my own when I was 15, uh, you know, after grandpa and dad gave me that still, I called it John A. Bowman because I thought it was a cool story. And one of the reasons for that story is he loved his railroad uh, to the extent that he wanted to be buried next to it. And thus that's where that large obelisk came from. Uh, he told his wife at the time, he said, that, you know, when I die, 
bury me next to the railroad so I can feel the train rattle my old bones. Um, the deeper that I dug into his story, the weirder it got. Uh, that obelisk, like I said, is massive. He's buried in what's called a Fisk metallic cask. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that, but that was this weird uh, shroud-like iron cask, like you think of a modern coffin, but this thing is molded almost to your body. Uh, it looks like it's wearing a shroud. It is in the shape of a human. It has a faceplate on it, and it bolts shut. And when they bolted it shut, they could fill it with inert gas or they could fill it with alcohol to preserve you. So he filled his with alcohol. Uh, when they buried him, they put him in the very first, uh, uh, what's the word I'm thinking, a vault that was ever used in Washington County, Indiana, uh, because there was a time when you didn't have to do that. But before they put the, the vault over him, and I still don't know why because he never explained it, they took four copper grounding rods and put them at the four cardinal directions on his tombstone, or not his tombstone, but his casket, and they ran the grounding rods to the casket. Bearing in mind, this is in 1886. This is during the craze in reanimation. This dude thought he was coming back, <laughs> right? I don't know if he thought that lightning was going to strike and he was going to wake up or some shit and how you get Holy out of it when it does happen. Shit. Um, long short of it, the house was in bad, bad disrepair. It was falling down and it was terrible to see. And luckily I was able to work with Indiana Landmarks and we found a buyer for it and I got to do a lot of the work on it. Um, I had a number of paranormal experiences, everything from, and you can hear this in the very first episode of if you have ghosts, you have everything, which I admit is not very good audio quality because I was still figuring things out then. Um, but everything from being in there working and hearing footsteps upstairs in the ballroom um, to my dad in particular, he would talk to John when he came to the house. So he'd walk up because my dad was scared of it. He would walk up the door and he'd go, all right, Mr. Bowman, I'm going to come in because he'd had stuff happen too the door would open for him on the backside no. of the house. Oh yeah. I saw it happen multiple times. My dad would walk in. Like I was literally still standing outside. My dad would walk in and that door would shut <laughs> when he walked in. Right. Um, I was tearing out the old kitchen floor one day, uh, which actually they had made up the floor out of old railroad uh, cross ties, which I thought was kind of interesting. I was like, Oh, okay, well that makes sense. They're building a house at the same time. Let's make use of some of these cross ties. And I'm in there and I'm ripping the floor out and this is in the middle of nowhere. Right. And I hear plain as day, like a little boy and a little girl playing outside. And it just sounds like they're, you know, playing tag or they're playing ball or something. I'm like, I know there's nobody on this property right now. And I got up and I went and looked sure enough, there's nobody out there. And of course his brother and sister didn't die young, but he had his brother and sister there when they were children. So kind of a residual sort of thing. Yeah. Um, we believe that even though uh, Bowman was a peace Democrat, meaning that he was a Southern sympathizing Democrat, we think that that was for publicity's sake because he was selling horses down South at the time. And he also helped fight off uh, Morgan's Raiders when they came into Pekin, Indiana. But I think that had to do with, he thought they were going to steal his horses, but we do think that he was involved in the underground railroad because there was a huge underground railroad network here in Washington County. Uh, and he wouldn't have let anybody know that, but down in the basement, there was a sort of false wall and it had the old wood was there and there was a door in there, but you had to really look for it. But when you open the door and you look inside, you'd see where people had scratched their initials in it over the years. And there's kind of a little shelf there. And I'd noticed that before, you know, I'd get bored when I was working on stuff. Cause I worked in that place, tearing down horsehair plaster, literally with a chisel and a hammer for months. It was, you know, it was boring as could be, but I wanted to be there. Cause I was like, I'm going to find something cool eventually. So I went down to the basement and I was kind of dirt floor cellar, 
right? And it had one level that was kind of up where they would keep their uh, root vegetables and stuff that needed more humidity and at a lower level. And I'm down there kind of digging around like, maybe I'll find a coin or something cool or whatever. And a rock gets thrown across the basement. It was a good size rock. And it hit the wall on the other side. And I came up out of that cellar, man. There's only like four or five steps to get up back up in the kitchen. I don't know that I touched any of them. <laughs> I got back up to the top and I said, all right, Mr. Bowman, I won't dig in your damn basement anymore. But that was the only kind of real like violent thing. It wasn't even violent. It was more of like, don't, you know, yeah. I, I suspect he didn't want at that time people to know that. And he don't want, it to, want them to know it now. Yeah. So hey, pay attention to me. Get out mm -hmm. of there. But that was actually, I had hoped that that would be the very first spirit that I'd be able to name something after it, Spirits of French Lick. And unfortunately, uh, there's uh, a Bowman Brothers distillery actually in Virginia. And ironically, they are the same family. So, um, but Mr. Bowman was very good friends with Mr. Lee Sinclair, who we named our first spirit after. And Lee Sinclair kind of is the one who took over for John Bowman when John Bowman died. Bowman sold him all the shares in the New Albany and Salem State Bank and kind of made him a rich man. Uh, Mr. Sinclair, of course, was also a descendant of the Scottish Sinclairs and was very, very, very familiar with the esoteric um, to the extent that he included a lot of those design features in the West Baden Dome and Hotel. Uh, so there's there's a little play there with that distillation magic as well. Um, and there's some ghost stories we've told about him on the podcast, too. Do you um, think do you think by putting those uh, those symbols and you know, like even with you, like, you know, with the intent that you put mm -hmm. into it, um, do you think, I'm going to ask you, do you think, but I want to ask you, is there any, is there any significance? Do you put it there because you expect by that imagery being there? that it is going to do something. I mean, is there, uh, for lack of a better term, is there magic to those symbols that, you know, and, and I'm not, I'm not trying to get into, mm -hmm. you know, uh, devil worship or, you know, the things that no, they absolutely. say that's going on into the, uh, in the music industry and movie industry mm -hmm. and all that stuff. But is, is that stuff used as to, to affect something? So, so for, for me, and, 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 and I, I know exactly where, what you're saying here for me, it's very much the intent thing, right? It's, it's very much a reminder for me and my own spirituality. Now there are systems in which, yes, there are those things that do exist. And most of those systems are not good is what I would say. Um, there are some that I do think have some very unique uh, possibilities uh, in, in alchemy. There are um, sets of, uh, uh, for lack of any better word, runes. Um, and really they're used to encode messages to keep people who shouldn't know, keep people who aren't initiated kind of out of it. Um, I certainly think that, you know, runes have power. I certainly think that things like tarot cards have power, but again, that, that, that comes into your own intuition as well as your own sort of intent. Now, are there things outside of human spirits um, that are in, absolutely negative that are being used that way. Yes. I'm not aware of anybody doing that on purpose in the distilling spirits industry that I know of. And I certainly don't do that. Uh, but it exists. It's very much a thing. Uh, a magic is highly dangerous. Um, something I would always caution anybody that's interested in the occult to be very, very careful of. Um, and if they don't know their history on that, they should read into it. 
you know, there are, there are certainly people who don't have anyone's best interest at heart and they're working with things that are not now human and never were human. I hope I don't offend you by saying this, but mm-hmm. you were either an extremely, and, I, and I'm going to err on this side, a very ex, extremely well-read and knowledgeable person about all this stuff, or there's something that you're omitting from <laughs> from telling me. <laughs> no, I, I, I literally when I when I when I talk like this, I'm, I'm an open book. I mean, my life is, is lived in social media at this point with, you know, distillation thing, et cetera. Um, you know, there's not, uh, there's not any, any entities or anything like that outside of the, you know, the human Thomas green and the history sort of things that I, that I play into. Um, you know, when I pray, Jesus is a part of that prayer. Uh, you know, the, the other thing there would be Sophia, which is a Gnostic goddess of wisdom. She's an aspect of the light and the, the kind of unknowable greater God of beyond, et cetera. I very much believe that we live in, in uh, a world where there's respect and reverence that must be paid to, to Yahweh, the, the biblical Old Testament God. Um, I have a very odd set of ideas. I don't have beliefs. I have ideas. Beliefs are beliefs are to me they're dangerous that's what gets people in trouble like i i believe this right and because i believe this then i can't deal with you sort of thing and if you don't um, believe it then you're wrong yes absolutely absolutely um everything that i try to do you know i i try to to do it from a position of of light and joy and happiness and um not to say that you can't be persuaded into those, those darker territories. And I'll give you an example. I've, I've mentioned it with alcohol already a million times that it, it becomes a, it can be a tool or it can be a hindrance. And, uh, and since January, I have all but quit drinking other than what is related to work and an occasional, you know, occasionally on the weekend, I'll have drinks with friends. Um, but it got to where it would get out of hand right now. And here's the problem. I'm a distiller. So my alcohol tolerance is incredibly high and, there's nothing, nothing negative ever came out of it. Like there's no, never heard anybody don't drink and drive and never done that. Um, you know, I, I don't, I'm not mean to anybody or anything like that. In fact, I'm, I'm probably the most joyous drunk on the face of the planet, which is probably just annoying. Uh, but here's what I did find a there's health consequences, right? B there's a soul consequence to it, which is uh, next time you drink, if, if you, if you really like needed a drink, right. Or you not needed a drink, but you really felt you'd earned a drink and, and you treat it responsibly, you know, short of, if you have a hangover, you're going to feel okay the next day or the next two days, whatever. If you don't need it, you're going to wake up and you're going to know that something inside of you that is not your physical body does not feel right. That there's a weight to you. And it's because it's punishing you. It's telling you, hey, dumbass, you didn't need that. You didn't need that. It's not, it's not necessary to make you feel that way. Uh, you've, you've, you've pulled the, the, the intent and the spirituality and the joy out of what you've done. You've, 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 you turned a house of prayer into a den of thieves, right? Um, Interesting, so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my, um, I, I think I've spoke about this before. Um, he's, he passed back in 87. My dad, uh, <clears throat> he was, I guess I got to classify him as an alcoholic, mm-hmm. but he did not drink often. It was once a month, 
once every couple mm-hmm. of months. Um, but he would drink till the bottle of the fifth of Jack Daniels was gone. Yeah, that's and, not good. And he would he would lose any anxiety, any see that's that's the problem. He he had he had a lot of anxiety. And he mm-hmm. realized that when he had a couple of drinks, that anxiety subsided. And Went he away. was able to actually feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, so naturally, he thought that the more I drink, the longer it'll last. And I'll feel, I'll feel good and be rid of my anxiety for a longer period of time. Right. Um, that didn't work out so good for him. Um, mm-hmm. public service announcement kids don't get drunk and then try to walk home from the bar it was better than driving but he ended up getting hit and killed by a car as he crossed a highway yeah. um, you know no Ubers back then but we lived less than a mile away from the bar and he could have certainly called my mom to come pick him up, and she would have done so. But no, mm-hmm. you know, you get that Superman complex, and you're not thinking straight, and uh, so. <clears throat> and and some people are minded that way. You know what I mean? And that's I'm sorry to hear that for sure, because that's 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 that is like the biggest nightmare in general for uh anyone in alcohol production like yeah. i don't you know I, for example here in the county i know all the cops i grew up around here right and uh they, i was on the fire department when i was younger my dad was on it for 40 plus years and my worst nightmare is like somebody will get in a car accident and one of these guys will see you know hey there was a bottle of your whiskey in the car if there yeah. was i don't i don't want to know I, yeah. I don't want to know and that's why you put that intent into it and that prayer into it and 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 you hope that it has some effect, but you can't, you can't prevent those things, people from doing those things. So luckily being on the craft spirit side, it's a little more expensive. So hopefully the people who, who do drink like that are not buying it yeah. is what I would hope. So are there any, are there any legends, any lore, any stories handed down from distillers in the years past the centuries past of a entity or a specific um yeah a specific entity that that tends to pop up more than more often as far as having an influence on um on the production of alcohol is there I don't know what I guess I don't know exactly how to phrase the question, yeah. but is there anything that people have reported influence the production of the these spirits? There's there's a number of them that are tied to it, and, and let me start by saying that um, uh, you know you hear a lot about haunted distilleries, and the reason that you do hear about that is because I do think that spirits, whether they be human or non-human, uh, you know, we may even be talking. Uh, classical demons or archons or, you know, the spirits of the Nephilim, et cetera. I do think they like to hang around distilleries because I think they can, they can hitch a ride and they catch the right person and they get them in the right mood. And then, then they're a part of that. Right. Um, Dionysus and Bacchus certainly 
very connected to that, uh, not only in the green man aspect and, and the fertility aspect, but also the sort of chaotic um, disposition, right? The Bacchanalia, those sort of things. Um, you know, Hecate to some degree, uh, you, you look into what did the, whatever you want to call them, whether you want to call them, you know, fallen angels or Ananakai, whatever, but, you know, archetypes like Azazel, you know, he, he taught metalworking. Uh, you get, you know, metal stills, copperwork, et cetera. One of the secrets of the universe is alchemy. Uh, you know, the, the entire distillation process is a metaphor for the spirit and soul. You know, you start with the boiler, which is, you know, the earth, the physical, you turn that into vapor, which is the soul comes across into the heavens, uh, and then condenses and is reborn. Um, I certainly think that that's, that's one of those spirits that could certainly be tied to this on the negative side of things to a larger degree. Um, those are the main ones that come to mind, at least from, you know, more Western sort of understanding of things. Also kind of that Navajo, uh, the gambler sort of thing that those same sort of archetypal energies, uh, certainly I think can be tied to that. Um, you know, on the, but then you have the, the positive aspects too. you know, ideas of psych and Eros and, uh, you know, sort of, um, Again, Sophia, this idea that you can un- unlock a unlock a positive door as well, uh, but it's certainly a balance for sure. Well, I don't usually, you know, like my episodes don't typically get into the esoteric. We'll we'll touch mm-hmm. on things that would be considered esoteric, um, yeah. but we don't usually do a deep dive into it. And this this was a very this was a very pleasant way of of getting into uh of some of that it's been a it's been an eye-opening conversation for me i mean you know obviously i read your uh your messages to me prior so i knew that you know it was going to fit well with the the show and i think Mm -hmm. i think people are going to find it incredibly interesting as i have um i can't help but think with as and I've used this word before. I'll use it again. With as ingrained as you are in the in the history of this making process, and the knowledge that you have of the people that have come before you, I I have to imagine that some spark of your essence is uh, is going to remain behind and and be an influence to others as as they're you know whether it's maybe uh tossing a stone across the the room (laughs) trying to get somebody's attention like you're not doing that right rethink Mm -hmm. that (laughs) um yeah i I can't help i mean you're very well spoken you you've got a you've got a gift for gab for sure so you know the podcast thing is is definitely uh right in your alley and your your wealth of knowledge on this is incredible. So, well, I appreciate that. I, I um, the podcast is <clears throat> is I hope people people find it interesting. I and I I do want to preface that by saying that um, sometimes when I do the deep dives on the podcast, like I did an Easter episode, uh, forgive me if I pronounce a name wrong because again that cornbread thing, uh, you know, it just it ha- and what you'll find is I'll say the name of something right one time and then wrong the next time <laughs> and then right again the next time. 
Um, but it, it's sort of all over the place, right? It's some of it's exposition. You know, a lot of it is me writing, writing up things that I think are interesting, uh, whether it be history or, you know, 14, some of it's straight up accounts. We've had a couple of haunted distillery things on there, etc. Um, some of it deals with the esoteric, uh, season three will hopefully be started at the end of May. I think we're, I think counting the bonus episodes on season one and season two, we're up to like 37 episodes now, which man, you guys that really do this, like more power to you because 37 episodes since July of last year about killed me. It, I don't know how you guys keep up with this, but um, I'm going to dive deep this next season and it may take me a few seasons to get this all out. Cause the next big topic for me is, and I know everybody sort of sort of does this, um, but I'm going to definitely touch on the Nephilim, the fallen angels, archons, uh, et cetera, and the story of the giants. But I'm going to try to do it in a, in a somewhat different way. I'm going to look into, uh, you know, more than just the, the Christian narrative of it, including the Gnostic narrative of it, uh, Jewish mysticism, et cetera. But then I'm going to tie that into something that ties directly into the state of Indiana. And, and maybe it's something that you're familiar with. I'm sure you're familiar with, you know, the various giants that have been discovered around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a great, great gentleman, uh, lives in Clarksville, Indiana, who didn't never get enough credit for what he wrote about. Uh, he's, he's still alive and kicking. I'm working with him. He's sending me stuff every day. Uh, Dana Olson, who wrote a couple books about the legend of Prince Matic. And he has a huge archive of old school archeology span from Southern Indiana related to the giants and related to the Welsh. You go back far enough. You relate that into, uh, the Danu tribe, you relate that back into dragon blood and fairy blood. You relate that back into the Scythians. And then that goes all the way back to the Nephilim and a group of people that believe that they were descended directly from the Nephilim. So, okay. Um, I got, I got to tell you, I got to stop you right there. And I have to put my bid in when you get mm-hmm. that, uh, when you get that episode worked up, um, I, I want dibs on, on getting you back on here yeah. because that is something that, uh, I've tried touching on in the past. Um, we we did a, a a gloss over on the giants. Um, it is it, it's remarkable with you know I think over seven hundred different uh, articles that had been written in newspapers throughout the the continental U.S. Uh, and ab- about finding these bones, and then at the turn of the century ish um you know a lot of people say it was the the smithsonian that uh, got their hands in on it i don't know how true that is it seems to be a a prevailing theory it it seems to come up all the time and then uh there's just there is nothing now there's there's nothing there's no evidence Mm -hmm. there's nobody that will corroborate that any of this was true and uh there, yeah, that's too many articles. That's you know, and and I understand that sensationalism was created by media mm-hmm. even back then because they wanted people to buy their papers. Um, but but there's there's got to yeah. be some truth there. It's a it's a lot of dots to connect, and it's it's going to take me a lot of episodes to do it all, and it may take me over a couple seasons to to get it all put together. Um, uh, Dana has an interesting theory. So, and, and for those who, who are interested in kind of tangentially researching this and it's hard to find stuff, but um, 
here in Southern Indiana, along the Ohio river, uh, you look into the devil's backbone site, uh, you look into the old Clarksville site and a place called the Prather site. And you find what they call the stone box culture. Um, and lots of reports of large bones. And, uh, one thing Dana pointed out to me is, is the Welsh. So if you're familiar with the idea of Prince Maddox coming here, um, the idea of quote unquote white Indians coming into the Ohio Valley, uh, the Welsh were very accomplished sailors, but they also had a belief in, in this sort of, um, I guess, human, you know, breeding for whatever it's worth for, you know, creating large people but they had they also believed that they had this very strong holy royal blood and they had these genetics to do this uh so dan he is he has tied this together for me in a way that i had not ever thought of it before um absolutely and and he's he's just got i don't even know how to explain to you man it's a garage full of files and he wrote two great books and he never got around to writing the third one and um you know, unfortunately, the county that he lives in is not interested in taking on his files. Uh, so I'm going I'm going through them. I'm digesting them, putting them together with the research that I have. And then those files are going to my buddy in uh, Salem, Indiana, at the John Hay Museum, uh, Jeremy Elliott. He was the county historian here. And so if Clark County, Indiana doesn't want to file that stuff away, Washington County, Indiana gladly will. So um, I'm pretty excited to be working with him. So. so on top of all of it, you're a caretaker of important historical documents try to be somebody's somebody's got to man if we don't get if we don't get the younger people involved in history around here and if you don't put their name on a bottle of whiskey nobody cares it seems so um yeah yeah you do what you can so for sure well alan before i let you uh tell everybody where they can find you and all the different projects that you have in the works um like i said before we started recording I need to get my hands on some of some of your product, and I am uh, I'm happy to do whatever needs to happen to make that happen because uh, I've yeah. got a I've got a flavor for that uh, that type of stuff, and uh, it would be nice to have something here representing your your work. Well, you shoot me an email with the uh, the relevant address, and I will I will make sure through our distributors that you get some stuff from us and. Uh, I'd be interested to see what you think of it for sure, because I'm, I'm, I'm awful damn proud of it. And I feel like it's done. I feel like it's done justice to Indiana distilling history in a way that hasn't been done in a very long time. So outstanding. Um, yeah. It's gotten, it's gotten national and international attention at this point. So, I mean, for a little bitty distillery in Southern Indiana, that's pretty impressive. So that is very impressive. Alan, go ahead and let everybody know what you've, what you've done, where they can find you, where they can find your mm -hmm. product your books. Yeah, absolutely. So, so the main thing I, I would love for, you know, your audience to check out, um, is, is the, if you have ghosts, you have everything podcast, because it's something I am putting a lot of time and effort into, and you, I'm, I'm not sure how to promote a paranormal podcast. So I'm not sure how to get your numbers up and all that stuff. You know, for me, distillation is the easy part. It's this paranormal <laughs> podcast thing. That's, that's kind of more of a hitch. So let me uh, give you, you a, let, if, let me, let me just clue you in. What you're yeah. doing right now is the best thing you can do. Awesome. Getting on Good. other shows, getting out in front of other people's audiences and, and bringing your a game when you talk about it, like you did tonight, that mm -hmm. generates a ton of interest. 
Good, good. So, yeah, you can check out if you have ghosts, you have everything, wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. I think we have six different platforms total. Um, there's 37 episodes out there. It's a little bit of something for everybody. If you don't like cussing, I apologize. I cuss a lot just naturally, uh, although not every episode is like that. Um you know, it does bounce around quite a bit, but we are sort of finding our stride now. And uh, I'm hoping to, to start networking a lot more with people that are interested in this and, and finding new stories to tell, etc. cetera. Um, and if you do like the podcast, obviously, you know, rate it, share it, et cetera, tell other people about it because it's very important to me. And it's it's something that it breaks up the monotony of the distilling stuff for me, right? It's another thing that I'm interested in, just as interested as I am in distilling. Um, and again, tied together still, but in a different, very different way. It doesn't doesn't feel like i don't have to do that podcast on tuesday you know what i mean i do it for fun so uh the other place you can check out the alchemistcabinet.com uh that's kind of like the the homepage for all the stuff that i do so uh usually there's a link on there to to my old blog that i kept up about indiana distilling history uh there's links to the one piece of time distilling institute on youtube if you're interested in home distilling or professional distilling we answer your questions there we do reviews etc and then you can also check out the other podcast, Distillers Talk, wherever you get your podcast. That's myself and Christy Atkinson. Uh, and we go deep with distillers of all shades from all over the world. Uh, it is the geekiest, dorkiest distilling-related podcast that anybody could ever hope to hear. So, uh, you know, if that's your thing, you're going to want to check it out for sure. So you can also check out spiritsoffrenchlick.com. Um, and we do have various distribution in, I think, 13 or 14 states and now Canada as well. So... Very good. Where can people find your books? Oh, they're uh, they're on the alchemistcabinet.com. So there's a, a section on there called the warehouse. Uh, and it's, it's sort of a catch all for like, whether it's, uh, you know, one piece of time or whether it's the alchemist cabinet or whether it's uh, if you have ghosts, you have everything. It's all just kind of tied together. Uh, volume one and two are out. Volume one I wrote, uh, I think in 2016, 2017, give some of my formative distillation history where I come from, et cetera. Uh, some recipes, the newest one is called the Black Forest Method, and it's it's a lot of history, but it's also a collection of unique uh, home distilling recipes um, based on the research I've done the past few years that go super in depth. They they you know if you're interested in gin, absinthe, uh, orange based brandies, weird stuff. This is the weird stuff for distilling. Volume three I'm working on now, and it's going to be entirely about what we just talked about in this podcast, sort of the spiritual aspects of distillation. Um, and even ceremonial distillations. That's good. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you're writing that down because that's that's some that's mm-hmm. some very interesting stuff. I mean, it, it's a different level, a different layer of uh, of spirituality and in things that we have not touched on before. Yeah. You know, one thing real quick I did forget to mention to you on the ceremonial aspect of distillation. Sure. Uh, there is a culture that does still celebrate that. And it's, it's, it's right next door to us and that's Mexico. Um, so we just, we just did something like this, uh, a couple of weeks ago on the one piece of time distilling institute. They, they have, so if you go and you watch mezcal videos, for example, on YouTube, you'll see that their, their, their culture and their Catholic faith in particular, uh, and then the various, you know, mixtures of Catholic faith and, and local faith, um, it plays in everything to do with, with agave spirits. So oftentimes they'll, they'll have a cross that they put atop the roasting agave pit. They'll have a cross they put atop their fermentations. They'll do blessings, et cetera. But one of the really cool things they do is they have a ceremonial distillation uh, for a product they call pachuga. And there are commercial pachugas, but they're not really as special as what these are. So a pachuga is something that a mescalero might only do one time in their lifetime. 
And it is an agave spirit that they then they'll use whatever local ingredients are in, in season at the time, various botanicals, uh, different fruits, etc. And then they butcher an animal. And it's usually either a chicken or a turkey, although you will hear stories of like iguanas, snakes, etc. Uh, and they put that meat actually in the still, in the vapor path. And they pull sort of the protein and the fattiness off that meat, which sounds, I know people are grossed out by that to some degree. Uh, it's the same as if you ever had a fat wash cocktail, which sort of changes the texture, flavor, and aroma of what you're tasting. It does the same thing chemically in the still. But the idea is that they are paying tribute to both the animal and, you know, taking in some of its essence, its quintessence, its spirit. Uh, and they use it specifically for events like uh, the Day of the Dead, or oftentimes, again, a mescalero may only make one batch, and they put it back, and it's served at their funeral. And that's what it gets used for. So um, we did that with rabbit because I'm a Hoosier, and, you know, you got to redneck it up sometimes. So, uh, But it turned out really well. That is very interesting. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah. that's part of their culture. It's something that they've been doing for hundreds, if not a thousand years. Yeah. So there's pre, there's evidence of pre-Columbian distillation there for sure. Uh, one other one I'll throw out for funsies is, uh, cause I think people will be interested in these things. Uh, Romania is the only country where you can be a licensed distiller and vampire hunter. <laughs> it is an actual thing. An actual really? title that does exist. Yes. Yep. <laughs> how so, how does how does that go hand in hand well they have they have a very strong culture of fruit distillation so um as a matter of fact ironically even though you know the original universal monsters dracula movie you know it took a lot of liberties if you go back and you watch the beginning of that movie when they come up on the hotel it's also a tavern and there's a sign that says palinka on it and palinka is often a distillate made from peaches uh or apples um so even even the movie makers there at Universal at that time they they understood that there was some connection between the two of them right so um, and it it, just, it has a lot to do with the superstitions that go along with those things so and the cultures that they get passed around to for sure so you know I guess uh, you live in I mean if I live that close to Transylvania you know I'd, I'd be a, I'd be maybe in the bar at night when it was dark drinking some palinka going I bet I don't go home tonight I'll just sleep right here. <laughs> Uh, Alan, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Your uh, your your wealth of knowledge and uh, and your and your presence behind a mic is uh, your top notch, man. Thanks, I appreciate it, man. And and please keep up the good work because I I burn up uncomfortable. You you and Appalachian Intelligence, I, I love those guys too. Because and my dad loves both of them as well. But you guys are the ones like. I look every day. I'm like, cause I, I don't, I don't pay attention when the schedule is. So I just, I, every day I'm like, please let there be something new <laughs> every Tuesday, so. every Tuesday. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really appreciate that. It's, it's always really, um, you know, I'm sure it's much like watching somebody drink your product and, and really enjoying it. You know, when I hear when people are kind enough to reach out and, and say that they enjoy the show and they look forward to it, um, man, I just, it's, there's something that goes on inside of you and it, it's not a, it's not an ego thing. It's not, uh, it, it's just an amazing feeling when you know that you're mm-hmm. doing something that people are, are getting behind and they enjoy and you strike a chord yeah. with some people that it, it's, it's an amazing, 
amazing thing. And, and what I really love about it is the community that it builds. Um, I've had so many amazing conversations with people that have not been on the show. They're just, you know, listeners or they've had interesting things happen, but they don't necessarily want to be recorded. Um, you know, the, the discord is a, is a prime example of that. We've got a, a bunch of people in there that they, they just, we all click, you know, we're just mm-hmm. all, we're all in it for the, the same reason. And we all want to learn and we want to hear new things and, you know, use yeah. that, use that critical thought to, to process it and see if it makes any sense to you or if it fits in your narrative. And yeah, uh, it's really, really a good thing. Yeah. I encourage you keep doing what you're doing because yes, the podcast, it can be a lot of work. Um, and there can be some expense to it. Um, mm-hmm. but it is, I, I've said this before, this is the first time in my life that I've done something for me. You know, when I was a, when I was a kid, I was an only child. So, you know, I'd go to school and I had to get good grades because I wanted to make my parents happy. I couldn't get in trouble. I couldn't do anything that all the other kids were doing because I didn't want to disappoint my parents. And then I got married and it's like, every time I got up and went to work, it was because I wanted to provide a good life for my wife and me. And then kids came along. And every time I got up out of bed to go to work, it was like, so I could provide a better life for my wife and my kids. And then you add a couple of dogs into it. And you know, it's, I want to make sure that they, they've got a nice house and we can do this and we can do that. And, uh, you know, and then at 55, 56 years old, everything, you know, everything is on me now. And, and this Mm -hmm. is the first thing that I've actually been able to do for myself. And uh, aside from winning the lottery, I don't think that there is anything that I could have picked that would have been better because the, the amount of gratitude that I feel for people listening to the show every week is just, it's astounding. Yeah. And you do, you do a great job of it, man. And that's one of the things I thought was really cool. Listening to several, several podcasts, several of you guys that get together and and you guys work together and I think that's cool. I, I like, I, I really like too, that there's such a diversity in the crowd of podcasters that are doing this thing, you know, um, not just in what you guys talk about, but also even in, in your individual spiritualities, which, you know, some, sometimes you guys let that shine through. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, that's important. That's cool. And it's cool to see, you know, for, for example, you look at, you know, the confessionals and, and Tony, you know, being openly, openly Christian and, yeah. and, you know, he and I probably don't have the same belief system, but certainly there's familiarity there and things that Absolutely. I think are important for people to discuss. So, um, Absolutely. one more thing for you, for you and for, for your audience as well. Uh, I think if people are looking for a good intro to like, if you have ghosts, you have everything. There's two episodes I'd point them to that are personal experience things. And, uh, that's the two trickster episodes from from season one and that that deals with some very strange things that were happening here on our family farm uh in Pekin, indiana some years back um that i I think there's things that have been on your podcast that you've touched on that are very similar to this um i think there's certain places that people are familiar with in popular culture uh that have similar things to what was happening here so uh, but that would be a good starting point for people. Well, I'm sure my audience is probably going, tell us, tell us, tell us, but I'm not going to let them yep. go to his show, yeah. go to his show and listen to it. You're going to enjoy it. 
I've listened to a few of them, and you're doing good stuff. You are. Thanks, man. I enjoy I it. I appreciate it. I enjoy it. So, I appreciate you, Alan. Thank you so much for mm-hmm. being with us tonight. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anytime. Good night. Well, that's it for tonight's show. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Alan. Um, go show this guy some love, man. Go check out his books. Check out his website. And uh, definitely head over to his podcast, The uh, the Trickster Thing. You guys are going to like it. It's, it's, it's right up your alley. Again, make sure, to sh- uh, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, both at Uncomfortable Podcast 65. If you have a story or an experience that you would like to have aired on the show, please get a hold of me at contact.uncomfortable at gmail.com. Make sure to share the show. Share it any way you can. That's what grows a podcast like this. Share it with your friends, family, coworkers. The main thing that you can do to help continue to grow this show and get it out in front of more people that will love hearing what we're doing. Thanks for joining me. I will see you next week. And as always, stay uncomfortable, my friends. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success.